Let's pray together. Um, would you mind standing with me and praying? <clears throat> Father, we thank you for this uh, opportunity to gather unto you, unto your name, the name which is, is above every name. Lord, we do uh, bow before that name. We do confess that name, the name of Jesus. We ask that today, Lord, that you, through your Holy Spirit, would illuminate your word to us, uh, grant us wisdom, grant us discernment, that we may be mature in the faith and grow up in all things unto you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Now, today I'm going to be talking about, if, if you were here last week, you know that we, I opened with the text in Matthew 7, where Jesus said in Matthew 7:15, he said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. He says, You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. As I pointed out last week, in the New Testament alone, there's at least 20, maybe more, because I didn't, I didn't count them, at least 20 admonitions or warnings regarding false teachers or false prophets. Um, it was a problem in the early church, and it's been a problem all through the history of the church, and it's a problem now. So we looked at a few false teachings last week, and today I wanted to continue. Now, I didn't give you a complete catalog last week. If you wanted a complete catalog, you'd have to buy a big volume with all the heresies in the church. <laughs> okay, so I, I highlighted a few of them. One, the one I want to highlight today is uh, a, new, a new kid on the block, um, and it's called by different names. Some people refer to it as critical theory. Some people refer to it as uh, critical legal theory. Some people call it um, critical social justice. Some people call it critical race theory. Some people call it social justice, and some people call it wokeism. Have you heard any of those terms? Yeah, some of you? I need to know. Raise your hand if you have. All right, so like 90% of you? Okay. <clears throat> now, if this, this is a group of concepts which I'm going to try to unpack. Now, I need to say up front that there's so much here that it literally would take hours and hours and hours and many, many, many sermons to unpack it all. So what you're getting today is a very brief overview introduction. It's the best I can do in one sermon. Okay. Uh, so understand that in case you're, you're well-read in this area, you're going to say, well, you know, you're kind of skating on the top. And you're right, I'm skating on the top because of time. That's the best we can do. <clears throat> the ultimate point here, as in the last sermon, is to have us as the people of God be discerning about teachings, not only in the world, but teachings that are coming into the church via the world. Now, I believe that critical theory is dangerous to um, certain aspects of our culture. Even if it weren't coming in the church, it still ought to be talked about because we, we need to understand the culture when we engage the culture. 
we're going to witness to people, we need to be aware of the way they're thinking. But we need to be especially alert because some aspects, some, not all, some aspects of this teaching are being proposed now by well-known teachers in the evangelical church. And I stress the word evangelical. So, um, what are are these, let, let me try to unpack for you a little bit what I call critical theory. And then we're going to talk about some areas where I think it's unbiblical. Now, I do want to say one more thing by way of introduction. And that is this, that to critique a doctrine or to critique a view or a worldview doesn't mean everything about it is wrong. You understand what I'm saying? So what I'm doing today is I'm being critical of critical theory. Shouldn't I be? They're critical. That's the whole point, right? So I'm being critical. I'm evaluating, and there's areas where I think it is unbiblical. Uh, But that doesn't mean everything they say is is bad and everything's wrong. That's simply not true. Uh, It doesn't work that way. As a matter of fact, that's why some teachings which lead to false conclusions, if you will, or or dangerous applications are so uh, appealing to even those in the church because much of what is said is true. And that's the bait, if you will. <clears throat> that's, the, that, that's how you get hooked, not realizing that while you're accepting certain truths, you're also accepting certain errors. And that's why we need discernment. Discernment means the ability to prove the true from the false, the good from the bad, right? Discern is related to a word which means divide. And we're told to rightly divide the word of God. So we need to be discerning people. So some of the key concepts in critical theory, one is called called class conflict. Now, we will get into the word a little bit later, so you're getting a brief lecture. Sorry. Got to do it. Class conflict was developed by Karl Marx. Anybody heard the name Marx? Okay, right. And originally, it was class conflict between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. And the bourgeoisie were the property classes. Today, we'd call it the middle class, or middle or upper class, and the proletariat being the working class. So Marx saw all of society through this lens of class conflict rooted in economic realities. Now, Marx had some insight. So, so like I said, not everything was wrong. However, the concept of class conflict has now been transformed through critical theory into, um, it's been expanded, shall we say, to include conflict between various groups, groups like male versus female, white versus people of color, straight versus queer, cisgender versus transgender, able-bodied versus disabled, etc., 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 and this, this expansion of Marx's idea of class conflict leads to the second word you will often hear, and that is the word intersectionality. Has anybody heard that word? Fewer of you. Okay. <clears throat> this is important because it's foundational to the cultural application of critical theory. 
This is a notion that all people can be arranged into a hierarchy, into a hierarchical grid, if you will. And those at the top, which means white, straight, Christian men, they are the oppressors. And those on the bottom, and it's hard to say exactly where the bottom is, because the way the intersectional diagram works is the less white, the less straight, the less male, the less able-bodied you are, the further down you go on the intersectional pyramid. You understand? So it would be somewhere like a black, lesbian, disabled, trans woman. Now, it sounds funny, but it's true. I mean, this is a real thing. Okay, this is a real thing. Um, and so, so all people are put in one of these slots based upon race, gender, uh, etc., and and they're ranked. Now, I'll get into my criticisms later, but I just want to say up front that the ranking is is purely arbitrary. There, there's really no rationale for why it's why do, why do you put white people at the top? White people aren't better than black people. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it just it, it's arbitrary. So. Um, the, the important point about the intersectionality thing, well, several things, but one is this, is that we probably hear today, at least in the media, more about CRT, critical race theory, than anything else. But when you look at the intersectional pyramid, it's not just about race. Race is only one category. There are many categories here. And so critical theory is probably a better comprehensive term for this ideology. And critical theory involves things like like post-colonial theory, queer theory, feminist theory, gender studies, disability and fat studies, social justice scholarship, and things along those lines. So critical theory encompasses all of that, and scholars, thinkers from these various disciplines all kind of converge around this idea of critical theory. Now, if you're asking yourself why it's called critical, it's because the goal, the the goal is to critique what we would call classical liberalism. The goal is to critique uh, American society, to critique capitalism, to critique our institutions. In other words, the starting point, the basic assumption is that America is problematic, and that's, an, that's a word that's used a lot. America is problematic. Well, that's, that, that notion, now I think it's problematic, <laughs> but I think it's problematic for different reasons than they think it's problematic. Why did the critical theorists think America was problematic? Well, it just so happens that all the original critical theorists, and many today, are Marxists. And so capitalism is problematic, right? Private property is problematic. Wealth is problematic. And so they had operating assumptions based on their Marxist view, and they said, okay, based upon our, our, our Marxist presuppositions, let's critique and develop a, a theory it began as a theory. It's now evolving into a worldview. It's we, in which we can critique 
classical liberalism or capitalism because we think it's problematic according to our Marxist presuppositions. Um, and so what originally began as kind of an economic theory has now morphed into a broad worldview involving race, gender, uh, and all sorts of things, anything related to identity. Now, another concept you may hear or read about is called hegemony. This has to do with power. Those at the top of the intersectional pyramid have power or privilege. So you've undoubtedly heard the, the phrase white privilege, white supremacy, white nationalism, as applied to uh, certain people in America, mainly conservatives and often Christians. But they're usually white. Now, or you've, you know, you've, you've heard phrases like fat shaming. You ever heard that phrase? Slut shaming. You, you hear about marginalized groups. You, you hear the phrase the other, meaning somebody that's not you, somebody that's not in your square in the, the grid, the pyramid, okay? And according to Marxist theory, power is bad. That's an operating assumption, okay? Power is bad. You have to remember that Marx's vision, by the way, I just want to say this. Do you realize that everywhere communism has been tried, it's failed? Do you understand that? When you read about the Russian Revolution, when you read about the Chinese Revolution, hundred, not just a few, I mean hundreds of millions of people killed by their government in the name of communism in the name of the worker, in the name of the people, in the name of humanity, okay? It is a profoundly destructive ideology. And not only that, but these countries suffered not only all of the bloodshed, they suffered cultural decline, they suffered um, economic decline. Now, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, Chinese communists, and they're not declining. Chinese, the Chinese, uh, the picture we have of China is not the picture of reality, number one. And number two... China is smart because you can have kind of a, a functional capitalism going on as long as the ruling elite is communist. And you still have communism because you don't have freedom. That's the one thing you don't have. You don't have true freedom. So the operating assumption in Marxism is that when the Marxist paradise occurs, when the revolution is complete, we will live in a classless, hear, hear this, a classless society, okay? Paradise means the real, there will be the abolition of government. Now, <clears throat> this is one of the reasons Marxism is so appealing, because it, what it does is it casts a religious vision, you understand? It is a vision of the millennium. And many Christian writers have commented over, over the years that Marxism really is a Christian heresy because it takes the biblical vision of the millennium and secularizes it and says it will be brought about by, by revolution, of course, without God. So it's a man-made millennium, a man-made utopia. And so this is the vision which makes it attractive but it involves the abolition of power. 
However, when you look at the historical record of communism, not only does it not eliminate state power, it always increases it. It has always increased it. Now, the argument is, well, true, but that's because we're not, already, we're not fully done with the revolution. It's in process. And then, you know, as they say, to make an omelet, you've got to break a few eggs, right? Stalin said that, and he killed at least 20 million people. That's a low number. Some people say as many as 100 million. You've got to break a few eggs. Okay, so remember, power is bad. Another phrase you may hear is what's called standpoint epistemology. You've, you've undoubtedly heard phrases like lived experience, or you've heard people say, well, my truth is. You ever hear anybody say that? My truth? Yeah, yeah my truth. Um, they don't say my opinion, but my truth. Okay, standpoint epistemology <clears throat> means that there's no universal or absolute truth. It also means that reason, logic, evidence is a construct developed by white, males, Westerners, Christians, people that are bad in the, in the uh, intersectional pyramid. Um, those who are lower in the intersectional pyramid, they have a special access to knowledge. And, and that is called standpoint epistemology. Based upon where, where they're standing in the pyramid, this gives them special knowledge. Uh, Vodi Bakum, I think, refers to it as ethnic Gnosticism. Okay? So the powerful or the privileged are blinded by their position, while the marginalized possess a unique and true knowledge. Now, now this is one of the inner contradictions of this whole view, is that they say that... that Depending on where you're standing, you can actually gain access to truth. But, in fact, they don't believe in absolute truth. Okay, so really, it's, it's, it, it is a lived experience. Now, I actually think that there's an element of truth in this whole concept. If you're born with a silver spoon in your mouth, you've always lived wealthy, you don't understand what it's like to be poor. You just don't. And so... There's an, and this is where in many of these things that I'm talking about, there are elements of truth, and that's why it's appealing. The, the problem isn't that someone says you can gain insight based upon your lived experience. You can. The problem is, is that the whole system actually denies and relativizes truth. And in the process, it is now at the point where it denies reason and denies logic. So now you'll hear people say, like, mathematics is racist. Okay? Why? Because reason is racist and logic is racist because these, were, these things were developed by white men. And white men are bad in the pyramid. Okay? The next concept, obviously, which is a, a major concept, is justice. Now, is anybody here against justice? And I don't mean Justice Witty. I know a lot of you are against it. Is anybody here against justice? Okay, of course not. Of course not. So, you know, and, and someone says, do you, do you support social justice? I'm like, define your terms. And that should be the truth about anything. 
Paul even said in 2 Corinthians 11, if someone comes to you preaching another Jesus, you might well, you might well tolerate it. I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus too. But is your Jesus my Jesus? Very often, it's not the, you find out it's not the same Jesus. Okay? You have to define your terms. So, um, as the term is used in critical theory, what you find out is that justice actually means uh, the rejection of or the liberation from all traditional Western norms. Remember, this is about an oppressor, oppressed worldview. And so what we consider traditional norms, many Western, I don't, personally, I don't care about Western norms. I care about biblical norms. Amen? It just so happens that for uh, 1,500 years, the Bible was in the West, um, affected the culture in such a way that many Western norms actually are rooted in biblical norms. But this, you know, the church isn't fighting to save the West. We're not even, even fighting to save America, per se. We're fighting to enunciate and declare the gospel, which is rooted in the word of God. Amen? So it just so happens that because we're in the West, many Western norms are also biblical norms. But these norms are considered oppressive. And these norms need to be... Uh, Rejected in the name of liberation. Remember, liberation is the opposite of hegemony or power, which is always bad. So this means rejection not only of classical liberal structures, things like the rule of law, private property, due process, and many other things which our our whole society is based on, but it also means the rejection of all norms related to morality, sexuality, science, education, family, etc. Now, if you're thinking that sounds revolutionary, then you're finally getting it. It is revolutionary. It is designed to be revolutionary. The point from the beginning, the assumption from the beginning, is Western culture, Christianity-infused culture, is problematic, and we need to not reform it. We need to tear it all down and start over. That's always been the Marxist vision. Okay? It is a radical vision of, I would say, transformation, but that's not the right word. Because transformation means you take something and you improve it. This is not transformation. This is cultural revolution. Is what it is. So logic, reason, mathematics, marriage, evidence, due process, go down the list. All of these things are considered racist or sexist or bigoted or uh, culturally conditioned by the hegemic oppressor powers. So justice means that, but justice can also mean what... Is called equity. You hear that word a lot now, equity? Some of you at work may have gone through diversity and equity training. That's becoming a popular thing in corporate America. Um, Well, how do we define equity, right? Ultimately, equity means, in critical theory, equity means a 
equality of outcome. Now, equity is not the same as equality, but when you, when you read the literature, that's really what they're saying, equality of outcome. Equity actually means the, the, the particular application of justice to, to an individual case. In other words, laws are generally broad, right? For example, you, you, when you leave, you'll see, you'll see a speed limit, right? 35 on, on the road. If you go over, break them law. General law. Now, let's say your wife's in the car and the baby's coming out. Are you really going to be going 35? No, you'd probably be doing 95. I remember one time my daughter Hannah was having a, 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 a pending, a, an attack. I threw her in the car, probably doing 95 on the highway with my emergency lights on, right? Well, if a policeman sees that, they might pull you over and say, what's going on? And he sees the baby pop out and he says, gotcha, and he'll lead you to the hospital. That's equity, Okay. Justice means the application of the law universally without any discrimination. That's just. But there are cases that come up that the general rule doesn't cover. And so there's an adjustment to the rule in the name of equity. Okay? But equity does not mean equal outcome. It, does, it simply doesn't mean that, although it's either stated or implied in a lot of critical theory. Now, as a result of, of these elements I've talked about, what's developed is a, is a meta-narrative or a story. And in this story, at least in our country, America is and always has been a racist, racist bigoted country dominated by white supremacist males. Now, in fact, America is so corrupt, is, not just was, is so corrupt that it cannot be reformed but must be torn down, and a new liberated society must be built on the principles of justice, meaning that is social justice. Now, this is where the critical race part comes in. When you look at America's past, there, there's undoubtedly no question racism, terrible racism, terrible. Um, I remember one night looking at uh, when things were blowing up in Ferguson, and I grew up over there, so it was kind of personal for me. I mean, some of the stores that were being burned down were the, the 7-Eleven. These are places I hung out as a kid, okay? Um, and I remember looking up pictures of lynchings. And I saw pictures of, of black people hanging from Eads Bridge. Eads Bridge is in downtown St. Louis. In the 1900s, it wasn't 1810, this is like 1910, 1920. To say America was not racist is just a lie. Um, chattel slavery is a grave sin. There's no excuse for it. So I don't want anybody to think that anything I'm saying that's, criti that's critical of critical race implies an endorsement of any kind of white supremacy or racial inferiority on, on those who are people of color. It's just not true where I'm at. Um, so when you look at the history, like, oh my gosh, it's a terrible, 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 terrible. And it is terrible. If, if, if critical race theory was being enunciated in 1930, 40, maybe even 1950, it would make total sense. 
to say that the country is systematically racist. Because at the time, I don't know about the whole country, but a lot of the country was. Certainly parts of the South. We know about Jim Crow laws, right? We know about redlining. So there's a real historical reality there. And that's the, the impetus for many people to swallow the whole critical theory ideology. Because there's a huge truth that is there and needs to be acknowledged. And I think many people have acknowledged it, but be that as it may, it's true. Okay? But then, again, a truth is taken and then it, there's false applications or false deductions from that truth. But, so, don't think anything I'm saying is somehow justifying the evils of, of racism or slavery because that's simply not true. Okay? Um, so, in order to buttress uh, much of what critical theory says, uh, History is, is highlighted, if you will. Literature is written in such a way as to display the horrors of how white people treated people of color. And those horrors are real. But they weren't universal. So much ink is being spilt des uh, describing the horrors of colonization and especially of slavery. Those evil things are true. Okay? They are true. They need to be acknowledged as true. But the point I'm making here is that we're not living in 1860 anymore. We're not even living in 1930 anymore. The civil rights movement of, of the 1960s have transformed our country. Now, are there racist people? Sure. Of course there are. There probably always will be until glory. Amen. But this is a different country than it used to be. And it, it's indisputable. And so in one sense, the, 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 the critical racist part of the theory, it's late. It's a little late to say now, to imply, look, look, at, look at the past and look at all this evil uh, racism. Yes, 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 yes. True, true, true. So we are now that. But we're not that. I'm not that. I mean, I grew up, when I grew up, listen. <laughs> just, just a couple personal notes, all right, on this thing. I was born in 1955. In 1955, there was white lines and color lines in the South. You get what I'm saying? Anybody hearing me? Now, I never saw it, but it's a real thing. Um saw pictures of it, but, and when I was born, I grew up in a neighborhood that when I was young was totally white, and when I moved out, it was thoroughly integrated, and I mean thoroughly, meaning I was the minority, okay, so my, young, my experience growing up was completely interracial, at least between white and black, my, my, some of my best friends in, in high school were black, and then when I moved out of that neighborhood and got a house with my wife, we moved into a community where we were the minority. I rubbed shoulders with black people every day. Restaurants, gas stations, um, grocery stores. To me, that was normal. That was just normal. 
Um, I remember growing up, my favorite athletes were black. Some of my favorite rock stars, Jimi Hendrix, black. Okay. Uh, go down the list. It never occurred to me that they were in any way dif different or inferior to me. It wasn't part of my vocabulary. It wasn't part of my worldview. And the amazing thing, when I look back, I grew up, my parents were Democrats. So I remember my dad saying that, that uh, FDR was the savior. That's a Democrat. Um, and, I, and I remember as black people moved into our white neighborhood, the only thing my parents ever said about race, it's the only thing. My dad said there's two kinds of people. There's good people and there's bad people. Good black people, bad black people. Good white people, bad white people. That's it. Well, didn't MLK something like, say something like judge people based upon their character and not the color of their skin? Same message. This is amazing. I never heard one racist comment in my family. I never heard one racist joke in all my schooling. I never heard, uh, I mean, it's just really astounding to me. When I, I mean, I never thought about it. It was just normal. Looking back now in light of all of this, when we're being told that every white person is a racist, it's astounding to me. But that wasn't just my experience. That was the experience of many people. Okay? Um, so America has a, a uh, sordid history regarding racism. It's true. And it's also true that most countries, too, and it's no justification of slavery to say, by the way, everybody did it. But everybody did it. And I will say one more, th one more thing. And this is not in any way, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know, sugarcoat evil. The, the whole intersectional thing about white, male, Christian men being at the pinnacle of evil. Do you know who... Do you know who was most responsible for abolishing slavery in the entire Western Hemisphere? Then come on. It happened to be a man named William Wilberforce, who was a white, Christian, straight, rich male. And he and, he and all of his white, rich friends, Christians, by the way, were called the saints. And they sacrificed their reputations, their wealth, their position in order to see that slavery was abolished not only in England, but in the Western Hemisphere. That simple fact, now that's, that, that doesn't justify anything white people did, you know, against black people. That's not, the point is, is that it, it is a very simple refutation of the 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 intersectional ideology. To say that someone is bad because they have wealth, they're bad because they're white, they're bad because they're Christian, uh, I mean, it, it's, that is a new form of racism. That's a new form of bigoted worldview. To just assume someone is evil because of something which technically is accidental to their nature. It's not essential to who they are.
um, Wilberforce was wealthy by birth. And he ended up giving some years, he was so generous, 40% more, 40% over his income to various causes, the, the main one being abolition. Okay? But if you just follow the grid, he would be the epitome of evil. It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the historical facts. And so we have, to, we have to acknowledge the horrors of racism in America and in the West. We have to acknowledge the horrors of slavery, which was a universal practice. But we can't cherry-pick things, okay? We have to, if we're going to do that, we have to tell the whole picture. And when, when, you, when you tell the whole picture, I believe you, you see that some of these constructs developed by critical theory are actually quite inaccurate. <clears throat> now... So, let me say a few things in terms of a critique. I kind of criticized a little, but let me just say this. On the, on the issue of knowledge, the big word is epistemology, okay? Critical theory is rooted in intellectual and moral relativism. There are no universal or absolute truths. Now, this obviously flies in the face of the biblical claim that God is a God of truth. Amen? It, it, it flies in the face of the claim of Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It flies in the face of the biblical claims that God's word is faithful and true. Jesus said to the Father in one of his last prayers, Thy word is truth. Truth is revealed to all, according to Romans 1, and thus it is accessible to all. Biblical truth is. Yes, our experiences can shape uh, how we see things. Our experience can give us insight to certain things. But, uh, and this, this is a huge difference. The biblical worldview versus the CT worldview is that truth is not relative it is not a social construct, but it's actually universal and it is absolute. Secondly, the, the issue of identity. According to the Bible, there's only one race. You know what it's called? The human race. The human race. Okay? No race is superior, no race is inferior. That's really the biblical view. Each person is created in the image of God with intellect, volition, emotion, and agency. Each person is created either male or female, which means they're cisgender. Cisgender means you identify with your biological sex. Now, some people don't identify that way, but they were created that way. And go to Genesis 1, because I want to point something out, which I think I did last time, but it's important. Um... In Genesis 1, in the creation account, the Lord, uh, the word says this in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man singular in our image according to our likeness. And then it says, let them 
plural, had dominion over the fish, the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man singular in his own image. In the image of God, he created him singular. Male and female, he created them. So the divine image isn't just male or isn't just female. The divine image is male and female. These are the two genders that God created. And they both reflect, they both each, they both reflect the divine image. There are not 51 genders, which is what you'll learn on Google. Fourthly, male and female were created to unite in heterosexual marriage. This is called heteronormativity, and heteronormativity is evil according to critical theory. It is evil. Genesis 2, we read where God created Eve, and then uh, God brings the man and the woman together in marriage. Male and female, the biblical teaching on marriage. So marriage is heterosexual, lifelong union. Heteronormativity is not a Western value. It is a biblical teaching. Also regarding identity, in marriage, the husband is, is the head of the wife, which means he has hegemony. Now, how you flesh that out and how you define that and issues of abuse and all of that, I get there's a whole big package there. I get it. But the point is, um, in critical theory, you often hear the word patriarchy, right? The patriarchy is bad. The patriarchy is bad. As you, then you hear words like, a phrase like ta- toxic masculinity, right? Because men are bad, patriarchy is bad. This is a, 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 an attack on the biblical structure of marriage, okay? Um, so in, in that regard, critical theory, again, on all, on all these scores is incompatible with biblical Christianity. Now, let's, let me say a word about hegemony. True hegemony or power resides in God, who's sovereign over all. Amen? God delegates his authority or his power to three governments. Those governments are family, church, and state. Now, we think of schools having authority or or businesses having authority. Those are outworkings, usually, of the family, sometimes the church. But basically, God designed these three governments. And when you look at scripture, you, there are many texts which support this, this, uh, these, what I call the spheres of sovereignty. Okay? These authorities are legitimate, provided that they govern according to God's word. Very important. <laughs> Nonetheless, they are created by God. Their authority is ministerial, which means that they don't create their authority. They receive it and administer it because it comes from God. They are not social constructs. Now, let me clarify this. You will see different kinds of government in different countries. You'll see even uh, various cultural differences in, in the constitution of the family and that sort of thing. 
That's true. Um, but the fundamental institution is created by God. And it can have you know, differences in different cultures, and that's not necessarily bad, as long as those differences don't violate the word of God. So, but they're not social constructs. And this gets to the whole Marxist vision of the classless, governmentless utopia. Okay? And where they, they, they do not believe that government is ordained by God, for sure, and they, and they don't believe it should exist. They believe that someday there'll be no need for government. Holy cow. These are not cultural artifacts. They are God's ordinances or, or spheres of authority designed to govern in the present fallen age. They will not be abolished and should not be abolished until the future eternal age appears. Okay? These three authorities are to check and balance one another since all authority except for God is tainted by sin. The goal of critical theory is not to reform these institutions, but to destroy, or the word they use, to dismantle them because they are oppressive structures. So again, incompatible with the biblical view. Lastly, more, what's called moral asymmetry. Now, I didn't refer to this earlier, but it's worth mentioning. Moral asymmetry means that, um, according to critical theory, oppressed people may engage in behaviors, speech, attitudes, which would be condemned if they were engaged in by oppressors. Okay? This is the classic double standard. So according to this, this uh, ideology or paradigm, if a white person were to criticize a person of color because of their behavior, not because of their color, they would say, you can't do that because, because they're a person of color, they are free to engage in various behaviors which you can't engage in. Well, this is the classic double standard, right? We don't see that in Scripture. What we see in Scripture is we see there's only one truth, there's only one law. That is, there's only one moral standard, and that standard is the will of God that's revealed in his word and through conscience, Romans 1 and 2, okay? Um, We're told in Scripture not to be uh, partial, not to show preference. And this is a, a, a classic example of doing that, okay? The, the standards that God applies are applied to all people universally, regardless of what we call race, but I would call ethnicity, or color, or wealth. We're told in the Old Testament repeatedly, the judges are told to, to judge fairly, not to favor the poor or to favor the rich. So let me conclude uh, with this. Now, again, I didn't point out good insights from critical theory because time doesn't permit, and I, and I didn't even go into a deep critique. There's, there's a lot here. This is, we'll call this Introduction 101. And I'll let Mike and Justice take it from here. Okay. <laughs> to do the deep dive. Because there is good stuff, no doubt. Um, and there's also... 
more bad stuff. But the thing I wanted to accomplish today is I wanted you to see that on some fundamental questions, critical theory is just incompatible with Scripture. It just is. So the question is, one of the questions is like, okay, if that's true, and I hope you can see that, how is it that we are seeing evangelical pastors imbibing it, preaching it? How is that happening? Or why is that happening? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. One is ignorance. Now, I don't use the word ignorance. I don't, when I, if I said to you, so-and-so is ignorant, you might think I'm insulting them. But I'm not. Ignorant means you don't have knowledge. I'm ignorant of so many things. I'm ignorant of, well, let's go down the list. Mathematics, physics, art. All kind, I'm a long list of things I'm ignorant of. Does that mean I'm stupid? No. If you say somebody's stupid, that's an insult. If you say they're ignorant, it just means that they're not informed, that's all. And there's a many, many, many things that we all are not informed about, and we don't even want to be informed. We don't need it or we don't care, right? So the weird thing I've noticed, and I mentioned this last week, is that not always, but in the vast majority of cases, when pastors who are good Bible teachers, they know the Bible, okay, at least they know the New Testament part. When they start getting involved in politics, they almost always start veering left. It's really, it's really astounding to me. Not always, but often, certainly in this case. And a part of it, I think a big part of it is rooted in ignorance, and that's not an insult. It takes, a lo- it takes a long time to learn about this kind of stuff, okay? There's a lot to read. There's books, there's articles, there's, there's, there's a whole bunch here. When I, my uh, red pill regarding Christ and culture was the issue of abortion. I um, was very troubled when I saw a video of a teenager getting an abortion. Very so, so troubled, I just wept when I saw it. And I began to think about a fundamental question, and that is the distinction between sin and crime. Not every sin is a crime, right? And not even every crime is a sin, because maybe the law is actually unjust. But it started me thinking about how do I apply the word beyond just what we call you know, church life? How does the Word of God intersect with culture? And that sent me on a journey of education where I, I got a master's degree in political philosophy. Then I got a doctorate in intellectual history because I wanted to understand. I'm, by the way, I'm not bragging. I, I don't believe in experts. As we learned with Fauci, we don't have experts. Okay. Did you get the joke? Okay. So I'm not an expert. I'm not claiming to be an expert in anything. I'm just saying it takes a long time to learn about certain things. And this, the church has a very rich history of political theology that most evangelical pastors are just not aware of. They, have, they weren't trained in it at seminary. They're busy pastoring. They don't have time to really study this stuff. And so they, they say things out of ignorance. Again, that's not an insult. It's not an insult. That's part of the problem. But here's another problem. 
as I said earlier, who isn't for justice? Who isn't for racial reconciliation? I mean, these, these slogans come out, and it's like, yeah, I want that. I mean, you can't read the Bible without seeing that our God is the God of justice. Amen? And, and so it's like, yes. And so they embrace that without realizing that, you know, the camel has now got his nose in the tent. And there's a lot more to it than just the word. How is the word defined? What is that word connected to in the broader ideology? Okay, that, that's, that's part of the problem. And, and it's well-intentioned. Because, yes, we all want justice. But like I said earlier, you have to define it. And it has to be defined according to Scripture, not according to contemporary critical theory. Another problem is, is what I call a confusion of categories. And you see this a lot. And this has been going on a long time at least in American evangelicalism. I don't know about anywhere beyond that. As I said earlier, God created the family, the church, and the state. And when you look at the word, there are various commands and exhortations given to these three groups, if you will, these three institutions or ordinances. And so what many Christians have done is they have taken scriptures and exhortations which are applied to the individual Christian and then they've applied them to the government. You know what I'm saying? And we, we, see this, we, we see this a lot. So because the Bible tells me to be merciful, therefore the government ought to pass a law, blah, 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 blah. Well, maybe not. Because that wasn't given to the government. That, that wasn't given to the government. So there's a lot of confusion about that. And I'm not saying it's easy to, to always figure out what, what goes where. But that's another area. So the church is the institution of welfare, in my opinion. Okay? Not the state. Doesn't mean I don't believe in welfare. It just means I don't believe in government welfare. I believe in church welfare. And I think I can, you know, show that from scripture of course we don't have time today but the point is it's that kind of confusion of categories which trips us up um, and causes uh, many well-intentioned people to support government policies that the government really shouldn't be involved in at all so let me conclude with a couple verses I'm sorry we didn't have time to look at really digging into the word but I just want to I want to conclude with a couple verses um We're going to look at Ephesians 4. I just want to read them to you and then we'll close. As I said today, you got a little, little mini introduction to a broad category. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books, maybe thousands by now. Thousands of articles. A lot to learn. We're told in Ephesians uh, that God, verse 11, that Jesus, he himself gave, to, uh, gave some to apostles, to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying or building up of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith 
and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature, or my version says perfect, could be, could be rendered complete, man, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Can I read that again? That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. The the church is notorious, the evangelical church is notorious for being blown about by wind of doctrine. Notorious. You just see these fads. I mean, I'm old enough where I've seen the fads over the years, you know. And for five or five years or so, everybody's writing books about cell groups and then temperament studies and then seeker and then, you know, on and on, fads, fads, fads. And that gets boring, then we get a new fad. Purpose-driven, you know. You get, you get it? Blown about. Well, that applies to ideologies like this, which are coming into the church. Do not be blown around by the wind of doctrine. Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Grow up into Jesus. Okay? That's how we're going to be able to, to get through the storms of life, the, the blow, all the blowing of the various doctrines. We have to grow up and mature in Jesus. Colossians 2. Paul says this. Colossians chapter 2. Verse 1. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus has all the wisdom and knowledge. And now this I say, lest anyone deceive you with persuasive words. That's why I'm telling you. That's why I'm pointing you to Jesus as, as the... As, the reservoir of all wisdom and knowledge because people are trying to deceive you. For though I'm absent in the flesh and I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding with thanksgiving. Beware Lest anyone cheat you or deceive you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and all power. We live in a day, even more than this, the biblical day, for the need of discernment. We need to be rooted in Jesus, deeply fixed 
and attached to Jesus. I need an amen. Okay? Jesus is the source of all wisdom and knowledge. It is in Jesus that we come to maturity. We are complete. We are fulfilled. And I will just mean fulfilled like emotionally satisfied, fulfilled. I mean grown up spiritually, grown up intellectually, grown up emotionally. We are mature. We reflect the image of Jesus by growing up into him. But we have to be rooted in him. Rooted in him. And that's why I said last week that the beginning of discernment is surrender. The beginning of discernment is surrender or consecration, Romans 12.1. And when we surrender, then we can go to Romans 12.2 and renew our minds. Then we can discern what is the good and perfect and acceptable will of God. So today, like last week, is just a warning. A warning uh, of falling into air, and an exhortation to discernment. As I said, there's much I could have said about this. We would take hours and hours and hours to talk and, and unpack all of this. My, my concluding exhortation to you is simply be discerning, be knowledgeable, okay? You're going to have to read. Sorry. <laughs> You're going to have to read some stuff. You're going to have to learn. You can't run and hide from this stuff. And stay in the word of God. Really wash your mind with the word of God. All of it. Genesis to Revelation. And stay close to Jesus. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, I ask that... um, I know today was a different kind of sermon... And I know there's a lot to process. I pray, Lord, for myself and everyone here that you would help us root ourselves in you, root ourselves in your word, and to renew our minds according to your revealed truth. And that, Lord, that we would be surrendered so that we will not be deceived. I pray this for all of us, regardless of our race, our gender, our financial status, all of the things which, which are talked about now in our culture, all of us stand before you on the same footing. We are sinners saved by grace. And we thank you for our salvation. We glorify you for our salvation. But Lord, help us grow up. Help us be mature and complete in you. And I ask it In your name, and I ask it for your glory. Amen.